More than 200,000 protesters have gathered in Belarus to voice their dissent for the current regime. However, President Alexander Lukashenko remains defiant. He has dismissed the protesters asking for resignation amid the rigged election suspicions and alleged police police brutality. Now, Lukashenko claims a NATO buildup on the borders of Belarus have been uh, refuted by NATO themselves. Uh, The group has commented that they are closely monitoring the situation and their presence in the region is strictly to maintain peace and security. Uh, Lukashenko told a group of his supporters that I have never betrayed you and I never will, stating that if Belarus fell to the wave, Russia would not be safe for long. Uh, To further give us some analysis on the situation in Belarus, we're very pleased to be joined by the Department of History Classic at the University of Alberta, Professor David Marples on the line. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining us, Professor. So uh, President Alexander Lukashenko recently re-elected into what is now his sixth term. He's been ruling the country since 1994. Uh, The protesters are saying that he should resign. They say that this uh, August 9th presidential election uh, was rigged. And of course, there was uh, a lot of police brutality cracking down on the protesters. I I know that uh, a lot of people here in Korea aren't necessarily familiar with the situation in Belarus, but could you just uh, give us a little bit of an explainer of how the regime has been functioning for close to uh, uh, three decades? Yeah, I mean, Lukashenko was first elected in 1994 um, in what were the first elections in post-independence Belarus. He was were virtually unknown at that time, other than that he was head of an anti-corruption committee in the Belarusian parliament. And that committee, um, he tried to um, accuse both the prime minister and the head of the parliament of corruption. And in fact, the, the um, head of the parliament was eventually dismissed on what many saw as bogus charges. But nevertheless, uh, he won free and fair in 1994, defeating the prime minister, and subsequently had a number of referenda that changed the whole constitutional setup in Belarus, uh, reducing the size of the parliament, um, getting rid of the current judges in the constitutional court and appointing new ones, uh, changing the national language so that elevated as a state language as well as Belarus, um, and most important of all, strengthening the power of the president vis-a-vis the parliament or any other institution of power. And the first referendum was in 1995, the second in 1996. He had a third one in 2004, uh, by which his presidential term was extended from a maximum of two terms to indefinite period. Mm. So in other words, he sort of made himself president for life if he could win the elections. And the elections after 1994 were always carefully controlled by the president and the Central Election Commission, so that his majority was always a very impressive one, 78%, 80%, 83%. It didn't really matter, but he was convincing. Uh, Worked very well, actually, because he was quite popular for for years. And, um, in fact, one of his his nicknames was Father. People looked on him as a kind of father figure. Hmm. The economy did very well. Uh, in those years, because uh, Russia was sending subsidized oil and gas to Belarus. The oil would then be refined and resold to European countries for for considerable profits. 
So in this way, Belarus stayed afloat quite nicely uh, and was known as an economic miracle case. I know South Korea went through an economic... It was a little bit different in that this one was purely sponsored by, by Moscow. Right. It's interesting in the sense that uh, widely considered to be perhaps the last dictatorship on the European continent, uh, but up till now, uh, it seemed to be a relatively stable situation. What is uh, the, the main trigger for these uh, mass protests to be occurring in Belarus, uh, and, and uh, what, what has changed in the dynamics internally there? Well, I think there are three things that really spring to mind immediately. Um, first of all, um, I think we're going to have to try to reconnect the uh, connection with uh, Professor Marples here. Uh, it looks like it was breaking off. Uh, apologies for that. Uh, we were talking about how uh, Lukashenko uh, initially uh, arose to power in what were at the time deemed to be um, fair, fair and free elections back in 1994, uh, but it is going to be a situation, as we've seen over the years, that uh, there's been a tightening and a grip of control uh, by Lukashenko, where, uh, according to his critics, uh, most of these recent election results have been engineered to be, uh, perhaps even falsely, uh, an overwhelming majority of support for Lukashenko, and essentially uh, what people in the West believe to be is a dictatorship. Uh, Hello, Uh, I think we have the uh, connection reconnected with uh, David Marples. Hello. Hello. Oh, does that sound better? Yes, it does. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, so uh, what about then, uh, let's, let's go into the international reaction to this, uh, the EU leaders and what I had just mentioned with the uh, accusations that the uh, NATO forces are mobilizing on the border. How, how, does, uh, how does the West approach this situation currently as it stands with Belarus and Lukashenko? Well, both the United States and the European Union have said that the elections were, were, were not free and fair and not valid. And I think that's obviously the case. I mean, that's not a sort of revolutionary comment. And they've not really said any more than that. So the Europeans have been rather cautious. They are going to impose or reimpose sanctions on individuals and on Belarusian companies trading with the EU. And I believe the United States will probably back this up as well. But NATO um, has really made no no moves towards the Belarusian border. There's been no even thought, I think, of, of, of NATO taking any part in these protests, which, in fact, have not been anti-Russian. They've not been pro-European. I mean, they've been completely politically neutral mm. and confined to Belarus. So I think also several European leaders have been in touch with Vladimir Putin in Moscow and have been discussing with the Russians what the next steps might be and whether they could work together to bring about a mediated settlement in Minsk. And I think that for them will be the way forward. Whether it is for Russia, though, is a, is a different question altogether. Yeah, and that's an interesting point here where uh, the, the objectives of the two sides, whether we're talking about EU and, and Russia, would seem to be at odds uh, with the question of Lukashenko and his political future. For his part, he does seem to be pretty defiant. And uh, although you said that the protests have by and large been um, politically neutral in the sense they're not anti-Russian or pro-European or anything like that, they just simply want their uh, democratic ideals to be upheld. Lukashenko saying that there will be no more new 
elections as long as he's alive. Is it possible, though, that at the end of the day, uh, what we're going to see is a status quo and, and Lukashenko remaining in power despite all the noise we're hearing right now? It's possible. It's possible. But I, I'm inclined to think there will be changes. I mean, mm. already he's lost his kind of aura as the father of the people. I mean, today he was walking around with an air rifle in response to um, the demonstrations and also bringing the army into the streets of Minsk. And Minsk was covered with tanks and other equipment today. Um, this is not a sign of someone who's, who's on good terms with the people. And I think he's lost that contact that he had in the past. And in turn, the, the population has lost its fear. I mean, despite all the beatings and the five deaths and people thrown into these uh, detention centers and beaten and tortured, uh, the people still come out the following week and they still come out day after day. There have been uh, 14 days now since the election took place and every day there's been at least something taking place in Minsk. And on a significant scale, I mean, the, the numbers today were in excess of anything we've seen even back in 1990 when Belarusians were protesting against um, sort of Soviet problems and mm. the end of the Soviet Union was, was forthcoming. So I think it's, it's a significant move by the population and in order to stay in power, he either needs the support of Moscow or he'll have to impose martial law. I see that they, those are the only alternatives. And either could happen. But my sense is that Russia is also very ambivalent about Lukashenko. I mean, he's had difficulty dealing with Russia for a long time. And Putin may be thinking along the lines of, well, sooner or later, Lukashenko's going to go. He's lost the support right. of his people. We ought to be looking around now to mm. see who's going to succeed him and making sure that the next president is pro-Russian and not someone who's going to try to push Belarus towards the Europeans or towards NATO. Right. Interesting points all around. Professor Marples, thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Yes, yeah, my pleasure. You take care. We're going to continue our discussion with uh, the Eurasia Program Director at the Open Society Foundation, Tatiana Margolin, also on the line. Hello. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so we're hearing reports that the Lukashenko regime has uh, committed many crimes, not just the uh, the recent police brutality that has made uh, news. One of the more notable inc- incidents seemed to be the kidnappings and murders of the uh, uh, former interior minister, uh, Vuri Zakaranka, the former head of the uh, Central Election Committee, Viktor Hanchar, and the uh, entrepreneur Anatoly Krasovsky in 1999. Uh, I know that on, on top of mind for a lot of people is this uh, recent poisoning incident with the main opposition figure in Russia, uh, Navalny, and, and so I, I, it might be unfair to link all all of these things, but could you elaborate on why these incidents continue to have resonance? Sure. Um, the cases of disappearances have never been properly investigated, and the people who disappeared are believed to be dead. So there was never closure um, on that issue, and there were, again, due to lack of proper investigation, is why people continue to um, think and um, um, mention these crimes. Mm. Also, the investigation by the Council of Europe in 2004 concluded that state officials at the highest level were actually engaged in cover-up of these disappearances and were themselves directly involved, again, in this cover-up. So in response to the disappearance and the cover-up, the EU and the U.S. introduced targeted sanctions against suspected high-level officials for the first time in 2004. So I think another reason you're hearing about these disappearances now is because um, the idea of introducing, reintroducing sanctions has been floated around in response to the violence 
by the state against the protesters. And um, some of the officials in Belarus are still on the same sanctions that were um, started in 2004. Some were, have um, been removed. So I think that's why um, the disappearances, again, are on the agenda. Additionally, it's relevant to note that after the mass arrest last week, at least 13 people are still missing, which is another reason these um, disappearances from 1999 have been refreshed in people's memory. Mm. The whereabouts and the fate of these missing people need to be investigated. At least four people already confirmed dead. Thousands have been detained and then many released and hundreds were severely beaten. So I think the cruelty of the state has a long history, which is why I think the 1999 events have been fresh in everyone's minds. And uh, these uh, links to Russia are often cited as well. Uh, Apparently, the uh, Belarusian state media saying that the president, Lukashenko, would only invite Russian forces if he feels that there are external military threats. This would seem to be a very, very dramatic uh, escalation of things. What would be the consequences, in your view, if Russian forces do indeed intervene and enter uh, Belarus uh, uh, to combat the anti-government protests? Well, intervention of any forces at this point in these um, popular uprising would likely have quite negative consequences. This is a peaceful, popular internal uprising, and Lukashenko should listen to the will of his own people. Both Russia and Belarus are members of the Collective Security Agreement Organization, which was created in 1994 together with um, four other former Soviet states. It's a military alliance which can only intervene in case of external aggression against its members as previously has been stated by um, Russian leaders and other leaders of the alliance. So what we see in Belarus is not in any way an external aggression. It is an internal popular uprising. There are no external forces involved in these events. And this popular uprising is not about geopolitical choices. There are no factors that would justify Russian or any other forces Mm. intervention. Certainly, we see Lukashenko attempting to portray these protests as anti-Russian, although just a mere three weeks ago, he was attempting to portray to his electorate that Russia is actually intervening in the election against him. But these protests really are about fair and transparent elections and the people of Belarus wanting change. Right. And so they want the president to resign, the protesters, uh, uh, the the rigged elections and the uh, government corruption to be uh, addressed. Besides that, uh, the I guess the uh, addressing the current political situation, what else do the protesters want or, or desire in the long run? So the protesters have been now organized. I mean, they're, they're being represented, I guess you could say that, by the Coordination Council of the Opposition. And they have a number of demands, w- most of which are quite straightforward. Um, they would like the recognition of Svetlana Tikhanovskaya's victory in the election that took place. They, of course, are asking for removal of Alexander Lukashenko. They're also demanding release of all political prisoners and investigation of the atrocities that have been committed in the aftermath of the election. And they're also asking for new and fair elections. Today, the opposition released um, a number of other demands, which include they're asking the police and other law enforcement officials to side with the protesters and for the workers to continue either to continue striking or to join the existing strike. And also one of the most recent demands, which I think answers your previous question, has been to stop dividing the country into Russian speakers, Belarusian speakers, or along any other lines where mm. you know the opposition really wants to emphasize that the people are united in this desire for change. The stereotype we have of these dictatorships, uh, including as what we know here in Korea very well with North Korea, is that they have a state media 
um, propaganda machine that basically uh, encompasses the entire information flow to the people. In Belarus, uh, that could be the perception, but uh, it does seem like at least one of the uh, major state media TV channels uh, did uh, go on a strike to support the demands of the protesters. It seems like a very remarkable development. Uh, Is that uh, seen to you as a glimmer of optimism or hope? Absolutely. Um, Belarusian journalists from um, a station that you're mentioning said that unless and until they're able to report honestly, they refuse to work. So they went on strike and there were quite remarkable images uh, of when people turned on their television last Monday, I believe, they saw an empty studio and music playing over that empty studio. However, um, so it does certainly, you know, it is a glimmer of hope and optimism. At the same time, um, there are reports that Alexander Lukashenko has invited Russian um, state-sponsored journalists to take over um, news on that on that particular program, that station. And so what we're seeing now is, um, I believe, actually in some ways more dangerous, whereas previously Russian state propaganda was very Soviet-style. I think, I guess you could say North Korea-style as well, mm-hmm. where it was, you know, it was just a parallel reality that um, had nothing to do with a, an existing reality. And anyone with naked eye could just see that it was sort of this very direct propaganda, whereas Russian um, disinformation is quite different. It's more nuanced, typically has some pieces of the truth in them. Mm. And so that's what we've been seeing a lot, an escalation of in the last week. We've seen an increase in this style of disinformation where um, there were, we, you know, we would see images from real protests that are taking place, but maybe Photoshop signs of these protests that um, were not actually carried by people or uh, protests, you know, taking place, um, for example, in support of the opposition, but instead in video images, they're being showed as being pro-Lukashenko. So um, I wouldn't say that the state media has sort of given in and given up and sided with the protesters. And I think the journalists walking out and joining the strike has been really significant. But at the same time, the upping of the Russian-style disinformation is also quite alarming. The people who have seen this uh, rise of right-wing extremism in in various parts of the world, including Europe, and then these uh, sort of quasi-dictatorships that have emerged, might be skeptical, even cynical, saying that um, ultimately uh, things will not change and uh, we will see Lukashenko somehow manage to uh, grip onto power. In your view, is that really the case? Do you think the situation in Belarus, and as we say, with no outside inf- interference and just supporting the protesters, um, can this uh, be resolved within the country, you think? I do. You know, we saw today, and I believe your previous um, speaker was mentioning today's protest as well, uh, what we've seen, what's been so remarkable, is that since the election, and even before the election, we have seen these remarkable showings of people, and not just in Minsk, in the capital, but really all across the country. The people are tired of Lukashenko's rule, and these protests are not at all about geopolitics. They originated within Belarus, and they're going to lead to change within Belarus. Certainly, I believe that if the army and the law enforcement side with the people, the situation can come to a peaceful end. And in fact, that's what I believe the opposition has been asking repeatedly. They've been making quite emotional appeals to the police, to the security apparatus of Lukashenko saying, you know, your, your job is to support the people and defend the people. And this is what the people are asking. And, you know, what's most striking is that Lukashenko claimed an 80% victory in the election. And, but of course, when you see, literally hundreds of thousands of people marching on the streets asking him to leave, you you can't help but wonder, where are those 80% that supposedly voted for him? So I do think that through peaceful protests, though it may not be enough to unseat a dictator who is holding to power for his life, as long as people continue to come out in these incredibly impressive numbers, 
they cannot be tackled by force either. And he's also losing his already negligible legitimacy. So I think Belarus really here is setting an example of how to tackle an autocrat in peaceful means. Yeah, uh, very, very uh, interesting indeed. Tatiana Margolin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, For us here, uh, so far away from Belarus, uh, really important to get the vantage point uh, from what's going on and and, and get some uh, reasoned and uh, cogent analysis on the situation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.